Depression can be a lonely experience, but there is strength in community. Sometimes just knowing that someone else knows how we're feeling can help a lot. Today, we have Dr. Jehan Marabit, who is a doctor in clinical psychology with a deep interest in research in human psychology. Having obtained a two master's degree in professional and research in clinical psychology, she has been practicing clinical psychology since 2008 she has a deep passion for teaching and transmitting knowledge to her students she has also published an article on the disorders of borderline subjects in the scientific algerian review psychology so let's welcome dr jehan and discuss about depression and explore unknown facts about it deeply hi dr jehan how are you hello hi i'm fine thank you So uh today you here for the podcast on depression and exploring the unknown facts deeply. So what is depression from your perspective and could you explain it with some real life examples? So <clears throat> I think that depression is well known nowadays many people are aware of what is depression. Uh but if we can uh somehow try to summarize it in some clear point depression include um it's actually a mental health disorder right that is characterized by persistent feeling of sadness loss of interest in activities once enjoyed before i mean a person have been enjoying before and a range of physical and emotional symptom that i'll be i'll be talking about but it's very important to highlight that it is a mental health disorder and that actually it take time to diagnose depression because people nowadays are rushing into self diagnose telling that they are depressed or actually they're not right so we need to understand that depression is a mental state of uh displaying all these different symptoms that i am going to explain but that should stay here for at least at least 3 weeks and not changing at all mm-hmm. then we can probably start thinking about a depression and then go and try to diagnose it so the other uh, aspect or symptom that we may observe when a person is suffering from a depression are persistent feeling of sadness uh, hopelessness and emptiness so that sometimes the person might say might say um i feel very sad i i felt cr- like crying all the time or sometimes some of them would say i feel emptiness I don't feel that very specific feeling of sadness but I feel empty I feel a void around me so that's also a sign of depression um we might observe also a loss of interest or pleasure in the activity that the person used to enjoy before uh there most of the time there is also a change in appetite and or the weight of the person uh we might observe also sleep disturbance such as insomnia or the opposite oversleeping spending the whole day uh on the bed and not 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 wanting actually to wake up and do any kind of activity uh we will observe also a lot of fatigue a loss of energy um we will observe also that the person will display a lot of feeling of worthlessness worthlessness and guiltiness sometimes with a reason sometimes with no reason and sometimes with a completely disproportional reason uh there will be also some kind of a difficulty concentrating making decision remembering things because you know these are cognitive process so concentrating is related to memory that is also related to decision making so the whole process is somehow damaged um sometimes the person might also display uh rest- restlessness and irritability <clears throat> and um 
And that we will explain a little bit later because also depression is different or there are there are different specificities when it's come to different age range. Uh, but restlessness and irritability might definitely be one of the signs of depression. Also some physical symptoms such as headaches, stomach ache, and sometimes also, and that's well known, uh, we have self-harm and we have also recurrent thought of death or suicide. That's actually so insightful. Now that you've mentioned about age groups and types of depression, can you mention what mm -hmm. are the different types of depression and uh, <coughs> how these different types of depression affect different age groups physically, mentally and emotionally? Okay, so first of all, let's discuss the different type of depression. Um, we have exactly, as you said, uh, several different type of depression. And we need to know that uh, within every type, actually, we have a set of symptoms that characterize it. So for example, we have the major depressive disorder that is more characterized by persistent feeling of sadness or emptiness, loss of interest or pleasure in activity, and range here of physical and emotional symptom that lasts for at least two weeks. Okay, so if these symptoms last for at least two weeks, then we can talk about major depressive disorder. Then we have what we call the persistent depressive dis disorder that is more characterized by um, same chronic feeling of sadness, hopelessness, and lack of energy that lasts for at least two years. Okay, mm -hmm. so again, two years, then we will call it persistent depressive disorder or some sort of a chronic the chronic depression so it's not something that happened once on a time no this is something that is repeating itself again and again and again and it become a little bit of a specific fragility related to that person okay uh we have also <clears throat> what we call the bipolar disorder that encompass depression within its symptom so it is characterized by an alternating period of depression and mania Okay, so the mania is that state of um, elevated or irritable mood that is more seen as hyperactivity and a decreased need for sleep. So the person will be hyperactive and, and not able to sleep and will function on a uh, on a highly rhythm. Okay, that allows. So these alternation between depression and mania can last for days or weeks sometimes. So bipolar disorder also encompass or has in it a depressive component. So that's very important to understand whenever we are trying to diagnose depression, whether it is just um, some sort of a moment of depression or is it alternating with mania? Because if it is alternating with mania, then it is bipolar disorder. And if it is bipolar disorder, it, we will need another type of treatment. And even the medication that are given should be different from the uh, classical antidepression we're giving when a person is suffering from a depression, a normal one, yeah? <clears throat> then we have seasonal affective disorder. So this is a type of depression that typically occurs um, during the winter months when there is less sunlight. So some people are sensitive to this and they might de develop some sort of a depression. We call it seasonal affective disorder. Uh, we have also the well-known postpartum depression that happen most of the time after the mother is giving birth and is characterized by feeling of sadness, anxiety, and fatigue. And that very specific kind of depression is very important to tackle because <clears throat> if the mother is not taken 
depression uh, charge off, if the the postpartum depression is not handled correctly, then it might impact the relationship of the mother with the baby. And that, we will talk about it a little bit later, might impact also the, uh, the quality of the attachment that will be built between the mother and the child and might also provoke, provoke what we will call infantile depression, which is something that is very rare and very um, not not that known among people. So people knows, know about uh, children, depression, but nobody really know that we can talk also about infantile depression. And the, the state of the mother, especially in postpartum depression, will definitely have an impact on the uh, mental health of the baby. Uh, and also it might, if postpartum depression is not handled correctly, it might evolve in a psychotic depression. We call it uh, puerperal depression. So this is a type of depression that is accompanied with psychotic symptoms such as delusions and hallucinations. And that might reach a very, very, very dangerous level uh, that even might lead to what we call the altruistic suicide where the mother actually will kill her child and kill herself because she thinks that this is the right thing to do. Again, because of the hallucinations and the delirium that she might be a victim of. And finally, I mean, we have situational depression that is more of a depression that is triggered by a specific event or situation. For example, uh, if I lost my job in a, during a divorce, uh, a death of a person I love, etc., etc. So it is related to an external situation. That's that's uh, I'm I'm actually overwhelmed knowing about <laughs> so many types of depression. Uh, how do you think depression should actually be addressed? Because so many people, like you said, are self-diagnosing and finding out on Google or AI as to what they should be doing. How do you think it should be addressed? So first of all, let me talk a little bit about the different depression. Uh, that are related to different age because within the different age we have different approach or different way of interventions okay so for example let's start with infant okay we were talking about infant depression so depression in infant is relatively rare as i said and most of the people think that infant because they do not have a cognitive ability to express themselves verbally it's very it's going to be very difficult for us to diagnose depression in them however we have some sign that we need to focus on such as the lack of responsiveness to stimuli, including people and toys, okay? So if the baby is not interacting with, with people, he's not interacting, not playing with his, with his different uh, toys, then probably we have an issue here. Difficulty sleeping or eating also. We know that many babies are puking a lot during the first uh, trimester after they're, they're born. And most of the time, we link this to a, some sort of a physical adjustment, which is in most of the case correct. But sometimes the baby is making himself puking because he is refusing to eat. Why? Because actually he's suffering. And I will also uh, give you an idea about um, the experiment that was actually uh, made by Renee Speets uh, during World War II that talks about the hospitalism syndrome. And that actually helped people understanding that we can talk about infantile depression. So 
let's go back to the sun. I'll, I'll go to this part later on. So we have difficulty sleeping or eating, excessive crying or fussiness, uh, poor, uh, poor weight gain or failure to thrive and reduce its activity level or lack of interest in play in general. So it's very important here to know that these signs can also indicate um, other condition, right? It could be physical problem, illness, or a developmental delay, and it should be evaluated by a medical professional to rule out any underlying medical issues. That's very important. So the cause of depression, uh, as I said, are most of the time related to attachment. And here, let me talk a little bit about Renee Spitz. This is a very famous psycho, uh, Austrian American psychoanalyst uh, that talked about in 1940 about hospitalism syndrome. It is also known as anaclytic depression. So it is a condition that occurs in babies uh, who are deprived of emotional and physical contact. This study was actually made in institutional setting, in orphanage and hospital during World War II. You know, during World War II, what happened, uh, many people actually, many soldiers were going to war. And because of the war, many babies found themselves parentless. So these babies were placed into orphan and um and because, of course, it was wartime, so a lot of nurses was, were taking care of the soldier. So few nurses were were still taking care of these babies. So we have we had a reduced number of nurses taking care of the baby. Because of that, because of the huge number of the baby to handle versus the lower number of the nurses to take care of, the quality actually of the care given to the baby was reduced only to feeding changing. That's it, feeding changing. So there was no real emotional contact, a play in contact, you know, that love and that kind of a stimulation that a baby might have and should have. So Spitz observed that these babies who experienced prolonged um, institutionalization often will actually show symptoms such as social withdrawal, decreased emotional responsiveness, and delayed or incomplete development. So these baby, after some time, started to refuse to eat. So even when the nurses were coming to them and were giving them food, they refused to eat. They even stopped um, giving the eye contact. Uh, they, they were also, they developed a, some sort of a stereotyped movement exactly as they were suffering, as, as if they were suffering from autism. And uh, at some point, some of them stopped eating at all till Till, till the point where they, they died. So that was a very, very bad uh, observation that was done, but it helped us understand that actually infant uh, or, or that emotional deprivation would definitely have an impact on the baby's development. Um, and Spitz here spoke about um, the separation of infant from their mother and other primary caregivers could be not the mother, could be anyone else, uh, anyone that would take care of that baby that could lead to the inability actually to form healthy attachment and long lasting emotional relationship later in life. So, and that would definitely provoke in the future a lot of depressive episode. So here, it's, it's very important when it comes to babies to actually uh, focus on how to take care of those babies. And when we need to take care of the baby, we need to take care of the mothers. That's very, very, very important. It's essential. The infant depression reasons are the lack of parental attachment. So the infant who do not receive consistent and nurturing care from the, their caregiver may be at a 
increased risk for depression, right? And we have also genetic factors also sometimes that also related to the predisposition of the baby to depression because it's somehow passed down from uh, his parent, his, his mother or her mother or her mother or both of them, okay? So this is within babies. So whenever we need to address infantile depression, we need actually to look at the mother and the baby at the same time. Because the more the mother is well handled, psychologically speaking, if she's well supported, well surrounded by people and given the right psycho psychotherapy and the right actually um, uh, intervention, she will be able to be available for her baby. And then the baby will be feeling good. And then we're fixing the relationship. We're fixing the attachment style. And we're not only focusing on saving the baby, but we are also preventing um, future depression within that person, this baby that will evolve into a grown person. So that's for the babies or the uh, infantile depression. Now, when we move to the depression in children, uh, the problem with the depression in children that <clears throat> sometimes it might be masked, okay? Sometimes it, again, children don't really have the capacity to express themselves as adults do. So most of the time they might show a lot of irritability, a loss of interest in the activities, uh, or sometimes they can also uh, develop complaints, a lot of complaints, stomachache. They can also fail fail into academic uh, at the academic setting and this is one of the reason why the parent will bring them to the psychologist most of the time just because they think that their child has a problem within his cognitive abilities and most of the time when we try to assess this we find out that it's not only academic abilities but it's mainly also a, some sort of a um, hidden depression Okay, the child is not feeling well or the child is reacting somehow to a, some sort of a unstable situation happening at home that is making him either anxious, worried or sometimes even more depressed. depressed. So here what to do, we need um, to encourage and facilitate social connection with peers and family members. So anytime we are intervening at the level of child depression, we are intervening at the level of school, peers, but mostly family. Uh, create a structured and predictable routine for the child that will help him provide opportunity for physical activity and exercise. Um, also help the child to develop healthy coping skills, try to look at what are his uh, strengths and try to focus on that. Um, you need to also most of the time what we do is that we help the child understanding, first of all, uh, that he is um, he has the right to explain himself. He has the right to express himself. We need to validate his emotion. And also we help him developing some strategies that will help them help him coping with whatever difficulties happening at home. And of course, we need to stay involved also and supportive throughout the whole process and include all the family members in it. Because if we are starting a psychotherapy with a child and we are excluding the family, it's as if we're doing nothing because all what we're doing here is that we're focusing on the person. Like actually, when we're dealing with a child, we need to focus on the group and not only one person. So, again, the reason for children depression could be family conflict or stress, uh, trauma or abuse. It could be something happening at school, chattel bullying. And of course, it could be a biological factor. Again, genetic pass it out from parents. 
Now, moving to adolescent, what is different with adolescent is that because uh, adolescent in general go through depressivity, okay, all the adolescents go through depressivity, so we might think that this is depression, but no, depressivity is different from depression. Depressivity is more like of a state um, that a state actually of um, um, a mood, uh, mood. how can I say it, a mood flow, right? So it's mm-hmm. not really a depression per se, but because of the different hormonal changes, because of the status changes of the adolescent, because he is actually um, confused between, is still confused within his identity, still confused whether he is a child or he's an adult, he's in the middle, in between. So there will be a lot of changes in his life, a lot of losses. So this is why most of the time adolescent will be a little bit depressive. So there is difference between depressive and depressive and depression per se. So we need to evaluate that in order to say, oh yeah, this is definitely a depression or it's not. So the adolescent might manifest their depression in a different way they might be more likely irritable they might show a lot of anger more than sadness okay and um for example here in depression we it might be difficult to recognize it because some changes actually or some symptoms sorry such as um appetite change or sleep pattern change might be attributed to normal adolescent development <clears throat> if for example the child is suffering from insomnia or he's not sleeping uh during the night time it could be just that the child is busy in social media or he's playing video games so because of the hormonal change he's facing some issues so this is a very complicated period of time this is why we need to navigate it very carefully yeah. and treatment how to to address that in adolescent it might involve therapy of course sometimes medication if needed but it's very important also again to work on the relationship with the parent because as i just mentioned adolescent is much more about um that kind of um rebellious phase where the child the adolescent actually the teenager is trying to um confirm his status in society to understand who he is and he wants to exist and in order for him to exist, he has actually to rebel against any kind of a dependency. It's a seek for autonomy. And that comes with a lot of difficulty, a lot of challenges, a lot of losses, a lot of confusion, a lot of questions. And this is what makes make it very difficult for, for an adolescent to navigate. Uh, finally, let me go now to the elderly people, because within the adult, we already spoke about it. With the elderly people, we have a lot actually of factor that might impact or provoke or trigger depression, such as the chronic health condition, right? We know that elderly people are more likely to have chronic health conditions, such as um, heart disease, diabetes, uh, chronic pain, all of these might contribute as a trigger to depression. We know also that they suffer from social isolation. So these people might become, uh, right after retirement, socially isolated. Um, they lose their friend. Some of them died. Uh, they lose some family members. Uh, they develop some sort of a physical limitation. And most of the time, they are infantilized. 
they are not included within the activity of the house. The member of the family are trying to accommodate them in a, in a good way, be it that is coming from a good intention. But most of the time, it provokes some sort of a feeling of helplessness or some sort of a feeling of not being interesting or not being active anymore, not being, uh, not having any role somehow, right? So excluding them or removing that social role from them is contributing to developing depression. Uh, we know also that because of these chronic health conditions, they might take a lot of medications. So the medication side effect, indeed, will definitely make it even difficult for them. So these different medication uh, merge can cause and wor or worsen symptoms of depression. And of course, we know that bereavement is a very, very, very important, um, let's say, factor that could definitely trigger depression when actually we can see within couple elderly couple when one of them die the other one would spend probably i don't know one month two months three months maximum six months and then he or she will die also so we have observed that this kind of a pattern a lot Hmm. So, so here, and also something important, when we want to track the sign of depression with an elderly person, we need also to think about um, sometimes irritability. It could be irritability too. It could be also the other sign which we already spoke about. But another sign is the distribution of their belongings. If you see them starting to distributing their belongings uh, among the family members, that could be a sign or is some sort of a red flag that probably something is going not going well something is wrong and we need to pay attention to that so this is why it's very important to keep supporting them and to keep including them within the activity of the family to keep including them within the decision taken to ask them their opinion and to show them that their opinion is important it's not just about asking them but it's also about applying their opinion and discussing their opinion that's very important. So they need to feel that they still belong to that family and that they still have a role in it. Uh, Dr. Jihan, you mentioned that sometimes medication is also used. Do you think that yeah. drug addiction is a thing with antidepressants or is it just a stereotype? And uh, uh, that... Okay. Hmm. Actually, that yes. being said, I really wanted to know is therapy more useful to address depression than uh, going to a psychiatrist or is it like uh, it works parallelly? Okay, so first of all, talking about antidepressants, we need to know that uh, the antidepressants are not generally considered addictive, right? But and this in the same way, like opioid, for example, these are the, uh, very addictive. So antidepressants do not produce the same kind of intense euphoria or pleasure that the other drugs do. And they do not lead to craving or compulsive drug seeking behavior. However, that's important to notice that some antidepressants can cause physical dependence, uh, which means that here when we talk about physical dependence, we mean that the body becomes active customated to the drug right and might experience withdrawal symptom when the drug is stopped abruptly this is actually the key word here abruptly and this is the mistake that most of the patient do so when they start uh, when they visit the psychiatrist and they take medication most of the time um, as soon as they feel a little bit better they just stop taking the medication which is highly 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 um 
and advisable. So what you should do whenever you feel like you're doing well, you have to go to the doctor, to your psychiatrist, and the medication should be stopped progressively, right? Abruptly will actually provoke the exact opposite effect. And it might actually come out with uh, even worse symptom of depression. So we don't want to go through that. So it's very important to follow um, some sort of the, 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 let's say the chemistry functioning, right? We need to understand that we cannot deprive our body from a, some sort of, uh, of a medication that we give it. So we know that depression is functioning more on serotonin level. So if we are providing the body with a more of a serotonin, and then we're stopping one day out of nothing, then the body is not used to that level of serotonin. He has been abruptly deprived from a huge level of serotonin so of course there will be uh, some sign of uh, some reaction okay but it's not as addictive as we think mm -hmm. that's, that's now going to exactly now going to the second question that is psychiatric versus psychotherapy um i would say that the first thing to do whenever you think that you're suffering from depression the first thing to do is to visit a psychologist right um because not all the depression needs uh, medication intervention but if you go to a psychiatrist most of the time you'll definitely uh, the doctor would definitely give you medication Okay, that will be the first response. But when you go to a psychologist, you might probably think and talk about um, what is happening, the type of the depression you're suffering from, and then you might, and the severity of depression you're suffering from, and then you might decide with the psychologist whether you want to go for a medication or not, or whether it is needed or not. In some cases, yes, it is needed. For example, when a person reach a very, very high level of major depression, intense, very severe depression, uh, when, for example, they cannot move at all, they are, uh, they attempted to suicide many times. So here, definitely medication is needed because it will speed up the process of the uh, neurochemical adjustment. But if we are not reaching or we didn't reach yet that level of, of severity, then we can handle it differently through thinking about what happened, through helping the person understanding the reason behind the depression and try to develop by themselves uh, some kind of an intervention or some kind of a strategy, scoping strategies that they might use at that time, but that will be also useful in the future. So first thing to do is to visit a psychologist, check, go for a diagnosis, go for an evaluation of the severity of your depression, and then decide with the psychologist whether you need or not a uh, medication intervention. Mm. All right, all right. So, uh, mm -hmm. although I feel like any kind of situation can lead to uh, depression, what are the major uh, situations that can lead to depression? <clears throat> uh, as I told you, I mean, it could be any kind of a situation. It could be genetic, of course, first of all, some sort of a predisposition uh, inherited from your parent. It could be also any kind of event that will disturb your normal life routine, such as most of the time these are sad events. 
<clears throat> such as a divorce, such as losing someone you love, such as a, any kind of a trauma, uh, such as, for example, now what is happening in Turkey and the natural disaster, the earthquake. Of course, many person might suffer from depression. Uh, I mean, any kind of a, of a disaster, not only earthquake and natural disaster, it could be also the uh, the 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 terrorist attack. It could be uh, flooding. Could be any any kind of a disaster that would actually actually uh, disturb the functioning of a person uh, could be bullying as I explained it could be um, sometimes it even could be a, some sort of a uh, positive event but what that if it's not handled the way it should be it might provoke a, some sort of a depression for example let's imagine that I had a promotion that's a very good event should be very happy but people will start developing a lot of anxiety because they have a new role and they have new responsibilities so that implies a lot developing new skills and if they're not able to do that that might make them feel uh, unworthy for the position that they took they might start feeling guilty and if it's not actually uh, adjusted or tackled right from the beginning, then it might evolve into a depression and the person would feel completely helpless. Um, also, we know uh, another type of depression that is related more to a hyperactivation, which is the burnout. A burnout is a depression. It's a professional depression when the person actually is uh, putting all her effort in her work without allowing herself to have any time to relax, any time to take care of herself, any time to exercise, any time to spend quality uh, quality moment with their family, with their friend. So that will lead definitely out of some sort of an exhaustion of the, of the cognitive capacities, and that would lead to a depression. So given that you're so experienced, has it ever happened to you in clinical settings that your clients' issues match with uh, yours and it becomes difficult to separate personal and professional when it comes to not only depression, but any other issue as well? And if it has happened, how do you deal with such issues? So that has more to deal with boundaries, okay? So this is a question that my students ask me most of the time. How can you um, put a limit between your life and a patient's life? Um, yes, indeed. Sometimes what a patient is telling us might trigger something within us. Uh, it could be something he's displaying or he's talking about something that definitely happened to us exactly the same way but sometimes could be a part of the story not the whole story is triggering some aspect in us so here what is very important to do as psychologist is first of all to be aware of it this is this is the first important thing and if we're not aware probably we might feel a little bit uh, bad we might feel um, that we don't want to see that patient anymore that I mean he is disturbing us or while waiting for example for the session we look at the hour and we wish that the patient is not coming so if we start developing this kind of reaction here these are signs that tell that are telling you that something is going wrong with that patient probably that patient is touching some area in your life or his problem his problem actually or his problematic is touching some area that are not solved yet within you so what a psychologist should do in these cases is first to there are two ways of dealing with that uh, first of all what we call intervision so intervision is 
having regular, let's say, meeting with colleagues to talk about these kind of manifestations and to discuss it with a colleague. So a colleague might help you um, distancing yourself from the problem. It might help you understanding what you're going through and help you fixing it. And you have also supervision. So this is uh, when the psychologist is referring to someone that is of a higher experience. Uh, could be someone who taught him at university or could be someone that mentored him at a professional setting. And same thing, he will be talking about these different issues that he, 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 he is actually going through with that very specific patient. And again, here, the supervisor would do the same work, like reflecting and trying to understand what is going wrong. And here, we need to understand that a psychologist is never, will, is never really finished his, his work on himself. It's a continuous work we're doing. So the more you are aware of it, the more you solve of it and the better you'll be in peace with yourself and the better you'll be able to address your client issues and you'll be able to help them as as you should actually so it's all about self-awareness and it's all about also uh keeping boundaries respecting boundaries <clears throat> sorry and also respecting their the patient mm. So that actually brings us to the end of our podcast, even though I could go on and on asking you about so many things related to this. But thank you. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for giving us the time and so much of knowledge in such an easy and understandable manner. Thank you so much, Dr. Jihan. It was my pleasure and I'm very happy that I could help at least uh, give it another look to depression. I hope that people will um, will have a lot of information over here and that will help them to understand depression a little bit more and to be more aware about it. And please spread the word around you. This is what is very important about these podcasts and these different interviews we're doing is that we want people to be aware because Again, if you're aware, then you'll be better addressing it and then you'll be better also at preventing it from happening because this is what we want. And this is what I'm saying all the time to my patient. Patient, I don't want to see you again, right? <laughs> I want to see you outside of my office, but not in my office. I, I want you to completely and fully and uh, um, function without me, without a psychologist. Of course, we might, we will be always here to give to listen to you whenever you need to help you figure out some new challenges. But I mean, when it comes to the basics, I'd like them to function auto autonomously. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs>